Welcome to Democracy Nerds, Jeff Smith here. This past September, there was a special day celebrated. You might have missed it. Maybe you celebrated But Democracy Nerds should probably mark it on future calendars. It was the very first Democracy Day. Might not at this point be a federally recognized holiday. Maybe it should be. Maybe you saw hashtag Democracy Day appear on your social media scrolling. Maybe you're one of the cool kids who read and posted, maybe even wrote one of the many opinion pieces and articles written to highlight the threats facing American democracy. Joining us today is Joe Amditas. He's assistant director of the Center for Cooperative Media. They're based out of Montclair State University in New Jersey. Anytime somebody says New Jersey, often someone will ask, what exit? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. It is exit 148 off the parkway, um, and we're at uh, 153B here at Montclair State. So, Very good. Let's just go straight into it. How'd you get into this mess? How'd you decide, hey, let's make a day for democracy? So um, there, there is an International Democracy Day or Day of Democracy. It was established by the UN. And, you know, I think back in 2020, January 2022, um, my boss, Stephanie Murray, and I were on online on Twitter, you know, we're, we're, we're reading all these stories, we're very aware of the growing uh, threat of fascism, the growth of authoritarianism, and it's sort of, you know, commonplace acceptance among several growing patches of the population, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, you know, we're a small organization based out of a relatively small public school in New Jersey. And one of our but one of the things that we do really well is we work to bring news organizations of all shapes and sizes together to you know produce collaborative journalism and you know in january of this year rachel glickhouse of the news revenue hub uh, read a column by, in the washington post by margaret sullivan that talked about the threats to democracy and what media has to do in order for democracy in the united states to survive so she took that and ran with it and said you know we should put something together where you know, news organizations all across the country come together and call out these threats and not just the threats and the challenges, but solutions, you know, areas where uh, certain towns or communities have made progress in sort of fighting back those tides of authoritarianism and, you know, safeguarding and strengthening the pillars of democratic process and participation in their community. So we wanted to look at the challenges and raise the alarm uh, while also trying to highlight solutions uh, that have worked in other areas. So what happened on the day? What happened on the first Democracy Day? Here's some of the generals, which is helpful. But what did you see? So, you know, we were very pleasantly surprised. You know, we went to look at uh, uh, what, what we figured would be our impact metrics, essentially. What, how would we know that this was a success? What are some indicators that we could point to that say that this is something that was positive, that had a good impact? Uh, obviously, one day is not enough, as everyone was very, uh, you know, fond of joking about during the planning meetings and everything. Um, but we thought you know, that one day of democracy and 364 days, maybe 363 days of authoritarianism and one day for shopping. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's fair. That's <laughs> You can divvy it up differently. I mean, you, you probably had a committee meeting about it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what it looked like was, you know, we had over 300 and I think we had around 395 newsrooms or news organizations and journalists and freelancers uh, who participated uh, or signed up as a media partner for this. And what it looked like was everyone together on the same day. Uh, publishing, sharing, and discussing stories, articles, and information about the democratic process at, that eschews the sort of horse race, 
uh, coverage that you see, especially at the state level. We see that a lot to say nothing of the CNNs, MSNBCs and Foxes um, at the state level. We really wanted to focus on um, explaining and diving into and really articulating the the nuances of the democratic process, how it works, what are some challenges and threats that people are facing, what are some uh, speed bumps that you might run into as you go to vote. I mean, everything. We, we even ended up creating this um, story menu that we distributed to partners and we have listed on the website, usdemocracyday.org, to give local news, art, uh, local news organizations in particular a sense of the type of stories that we were hoping to see and that we think, and based on our research and our surveys that we think that residents, local residents would benefit most from. How you pick the day? I, I Googled democracy day. It seems like it's in different play, different days for different countries. Yeah. So that we struggled with this a little bit because like I said, there is an already, there is already an international day of democracy and it is September 15th. And while we were aware of the possibilities that that might get stepped on, or maybe there's a little confusion, especially when it comes to the hashtags people are using, um, you know, not every post under Democracy Day on International Democracy Day is going to be about our U.S. Democracy Day yeah. project. So, yeah, we, we decided September 15th would be a, a strong enough news peg to sort of gather attention and rally the troops around um, to get everybody to focus on it. It seems to me that one of the challenges I see a bunch. People decrying. Evincing their concern about the decline of democracy. I don't see as much, and it might be because I'm not looking carefully enough. It might be because it's not as interesting a message or it's just assumed by everybody. It's not as important, but I don't see as much a base case for why we care about democracy in the first place. Or we hear, oh, it's authoritarianism. Or we hear, oh, they're violating norms of democracy or democracy is in decline. To what degree do you think we have a shared assumption that democracy is a good thing in the first place? I don't think we have a shared assumption uh, that it's a good thing. A lot of these seemingly axiomatic principles of what we consider, you know, right, good, you know, bad um, are, I, I, I would say they never really have been um, homogenized to the level that people have a common sense of agreement in on, on every issue. There have been certain times when people rally around a particular concept or idea or cause. Um, I mean, but we have to face it. We we have only been a multiracial democracy and therefore a real democracy in any sense for uh, for less than 60 years. Um, you know, so so we we really don't we don't even not only do we not have a common definition on it, but even the people who agree what democracy is, that there's disagreement about whether or not we've been a democracy this whole time. We've been sort of a Herrenvolk democracy, um, but not one that fully forgive that uh, word. Say that word again. Herrenvolk democracy. Um, there's a, a, a really brilliant professor that uh, that I had in college who who taught about that the concept of a Herrenvolk democracy, one in which uh, pro proclaims to be universal and um, you know participatory, but simultaneously oppresses an entire subclass or subclasses of those people within that electorate, and therefore does not actually become a democracy. But yeah, I mean, so so to to get back to your original question. Um, there, there isn't a lot about that. There are some places and there are really brilliant scholars and there are brilliant writers and thinkers who talk about this um, and not just talking about it and, you know, lamenting it and, oh, in the last four years, the orange man has, you know, made everything so bad, but to really look at the root causes and failings in the systems that we have uh, and where we might be able to make adjustments or changes 
or reforms in order to um, get back to a, a more full, get, get to a more full level of participation because democracy is good because participation in the governance of your society um, gives you a direct input and a direct uh, hand on at least some levers in those decision-making processes. And as far as, um, you know, active participation and agency are considered good, then de democracy is to be considered um, equally or at least in the same area of good. What's the best way to make the case for democracy? It depends on who you're talking to, obviously. Um, you know, you have to craft your messaging to to uh, fit the, the room, essentially. But I mean, personally, and this is this is just me, I think the best case for democracy is a representation, as it always has been, a seat at the table, a voice in the conversation, and not just one that is heard and then disregarded, but that you can actually hold the people who impact your lives the most and on a most a direct level, uh, at least somewhat accountable through, um, you know, organized direct action. Um, and, and it doesn't that doesn't just mean um voting every time they you know go to the polling place every time there's an election i think that is part of the problem as well is the inability to discuss democracy in a broader sense uh of civic participation in uh community engagement and uh local local support and community relationships as a, as well as in, in addition to uh going to vote i think i don't remember who it is but somebody uh you know says uh voting uh, voting is to democracy what uh, you know wiping is to hygiene you know you have to do it it, you know, but but it's not the only thing you have to do. There's plenty more you have to do to maintain a healthy body uh, politic, as well as a, rel a relatively healthy body. Yeah. So it's a baseline expectation. Voting is a baseline expectation of democracy. I hear that. I, the community thing is interesting, but I want to poke at this. To be clear, like I'm, I'm an out. You know, I, I come in peace, right? So I want to I'm going to please poke a bit. But the, but I I want to enunciate brilliant answers to these questions. I want to help, right? Spread the word, but let's imagine we're behind a veil, a, a, a Rawlsian veil of ignorance and we're making the old, and, and it's a, so, and all I mean by that is we don't know the position we're going to be in when we're crafting the system and we're crafting a system that will be good. Even if we're not exactly sure what station we're going to be in that system. doesn't mean we'd make everybody the same, but at least we're using right. that. Uh, we're using that, uh, using that framework. And we're deciding on what kind of system. And somebody says, maybe it's like the student used to spar with me when I would speak at Pomona College. And he would come to my talks each year and say, essentially, he'd use better words than I'm about to use, but he'd say, well, why do we want the dum-dums to vote? Why do we want, like, why don't we want the people who know what the heck is going on to be in charge? Why couldn't, I why couldn't we imagine either... A, a benevolent autocracy or a benevolent plutocracy. Why couldn't we imagine a system that, why is, why is participation its own value? It seems tautological. I said, well, what's, what, what's the best way to make the case for democracy? Well, participation, more participation. Well, what if I care about is outcomes of my own life and I kind of want to participate. I want to go I Ikea. I want to watch a football game. I want to yeah. raise my family. I want to die with more property than I was born with. Right. Why do I care about participation, particularly participation from somebody who has different interests than mine? Well, I think I think it's a great question. And this is something everybody has to struggle with as they go through their philosophical development and growth. Um, and I think more uh, the more relevant question to your first uh, uh, query about you know, why do we want the dum-dums to vote? It's not that we specifically do even, it's that we don't want uh, unelect, uh, unelected, un, un, unaccountable people to decide who, who's considered a dum-dum. 
And the only way that you can prevent against that is to build some sort of system that allows popular present representation um, and participation to a level that would allow you to adjust or correct for the authoritarian trends that that essentially go to a certain point and then there is no return because once you leave those mechanisms of participation and accountability behind, then any rule that's made after that isn't, doesn't have your input and you have no option or, or, or hope of it being able to impact the direction or, or uh, structure of those decisions. Let me try this. So an old interview question is what's the most valuable part of a model car kit? I don't know if model car kits even exist anymore. When I was a kid, you'd have a model car kit, right? Yeah. Make a little Corvette because you couldn't afford a real one. And it was kind of fun to build. And the question is, what's the most important piece in the model car kit? And there's various answers, right? I like the answer is steering wheel. Otherwise, how are you going to drive anywhere? And the best answer I've ever heard is the picture on top of the box. Is a vision of what you're trying to put together. You know, because some, some people think they're real clever with the glue. Best answer I've ever heard is picture on top of the box. So let's imagine a picture on top of the box. You just said the United States hasn't been a multiracial democracy, a, something with a better claim of being a real republic until pretty recently. What's your favorite picture on top of the box? Not only a philosophical case for why democracy is good, but any examples of where it's good and how we should see it. And maybe we can evaluate the outcomes versus places that seem worse. So what would my picture on the box look like? Sure. Um, I, I would say, actually, my answer to the first question, which is what's the most important piece, uh, I would say the next one, um, because as someone who is dedicated to the craft of building model cars, or in our example, uh, a more perfect union as a democracy nerd is uh, certainly in favor of, uh, I would say the most important step is the next step. And as long as you are looking toward how to fit this next piece into where it goes, what shapes uh, make sense here? What kind of structural integrity does it add or subtract by putting it in a particular location? And what other pieces can it be combined with in order to make the ultimate goal, to reach the ultimate goal of completing the picture on the box? Um, and I think the picture on the box for me, at least, um, maybe I'm a little bit more of a, a, an abstract jigsaw puzzle uh, kind of guy for this example, but the picture on the box for me looks like local um, involvement, local control. It looks like worker ownership and participation in, uh, it looks like democracy, not just at, at, at the polling place, but democracy at work and democracy in our communities and the level of civic engagement and participation that comes with the feeling of having an ownership stake in something and having a vested interest in its success and its health. And with those combined, uh, that picture to me starts to emerge of a, uh, of a locally, unapologetically local, yet um, reasonably situated uh, national and international patchwork. There's a concept in computing uh, called packets or packages, and I'm not a coder, so I'm sure all the, the actual nerds here will uh, will jump on me for this. But essentially, it's a technology that allowed you to uh, package information and data and send it and allow it to interact with other packages of data because the interlocking packet connectors were were universal, but the information contained within was unique and as you know varied as any coder or or program can be. And if you build systems that allow local control of local issues and a cascading upward system of of not just oversight and transparency and accountability, but um, interreliability, then you start to see a patchwork and ecosystem emerge 
uh, in which all of the constituent parts and participants have their value, their size, their strengths, their weaknesses, um, but they're valued none, no less or more than the other because of them. What democracies are working well? Oh, man, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't know if that I think the ones that are working well are the ones that continually reexamine themselves and allow uh, changes and e evolution to occur while also making sure that not just the positive freedoms that you mentioned earlier, the ability to do something or to you know, uh, have agency and, and do things of your own volition, but also the negative freedoms, the freedom from oppression, the freedom from uh, discrimination and um, harassment, uh, that they're both are equally valued uh, or, or equitably valued. And that also a democracy, a, a, a successful democracy would be one that takes count and takes note of its history and its evolution, not just uh, looking, not just examining exactly where you are in the immediate past and immediate future. I want to stick on this because I think sure. there's a, I think I see a built-in tautology to nearly all of the democracy discussion that I care about, which is Democracy is good. How come? Well, because it engenders participation. Well, what's good about participation? Well, it makes democracy better. Well, how do we evaluate participation and democracy? Well, if more people are engaged and if the degree of engagement is higher and if the breadth of engagement is more diverse, why is that good? Well, because that's what makes participation better and what makes democracy better. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. All to the good. And maybe what we're saying is that democracy is the first principle, or that engagement is the first principle, or that shared power is the first principle, is, is in fact a raison d'etre, that in fact, engagement itself is its own reward. Let's say we're talking to somebody who's not yet in on that joke. Let's take, let's imagine we're talking to somebody who's like, yeah, it's it's just not, it's not my, it's not my top five. And how do we what are the ways, and, and I say this in part to lobby you and in part to inform what we should be talking about with these discussions, right? The kind of guests we should be ha having. And one of the reasons I was asking, like, what other countries, right? Who's doing it well? It's like, oh, well, look at over there. Isn't that pretty cool? Wouldn't we rather be like that than be like that over there? Keep going on how you would, you know, talk to somebody who is democracy skeptical about why they should care in the first place. Well, I think um, you know you mentioned a lot of of, of you know what I think you called them prime. What did you call them? Original goods or or the uh, the base base goods? You said uh, share of power, things like that. I, I, I was just I was just using what some people might say as borderline synonyms of democracy or like you know right. basic process values. Right, like like dignity, for instance. Right, like the big one for me is dignity, and oh, that's a good one. It's very hard to live a life of dignity, or I should say you are much more susceptible to somebody taking your dignity away if you relinquish control or relinquish hold of the mechanisms of power. And, you know, there, democracy is such a, a broad word and it has so many yeah. different applications. And when I studied political science uh, for my undergraduate degree, you know, any as any political science student can tell you or expert can tell you, um, you know, the words are incredibly important because you don't... You, you don't even know what they mean until you've spent, you know, really years dissecting them and interrogating them, not just in, in the scholarship, but uh, uh, your own biases and your own understandings. And I think when people hear democracy, uh, which is, again, another reason why we were actually discussed 
back and forth a few times what to call this. Should we call it Democracy Day? I love there that are, you did. There are polling. There's polling that shows that, you know, people are more and more, you know, associating the word democracy um, with certain political parties uh, or especially certain mainstream political parties. And that's tough. Or because- maybe even a smaller number than plural. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, the Democratic Party, pretty much. And there's a lot of that, which is another reason why I hate sort of vague terms. That's why I hate when people use the phrase the big lie. These sort of like catchword catchphrases become co-opted and they become and and they change like all language does. And it's not to say that there aren't words or there, there aren't any words to describe what we mean. But when you use an individual or a single word like democracy, which has such broad implications and nuances, uh, you're going to run into trouble convincing anybody. Because from the start, when they hear that word right off the bat, they instantly have a whole set of definitions and connotations that they assign to it. So I like to try to avoid um, you know, certain buzzwords. But when I talk about democracy with somebody who maybe isn't in on that joke, like you said, um, I start from a, a, a descriptions of real material conditions. I talk about the way that we interact with li- with our lives, with the lives of others, with our environment every day. And it's very, uh, it's actually quite easy to work your way backwards from everyday interactions towards the way that political power operates in our lives and, and uh, in our societies. Um, and especially in cases where people are are disengaged or apathetic or are non-voters, which I think is a huge undertapped um, source of potential uh, voter participation, um, especially when I'm talking to so-called you know disengaged people or apolitical people, um, it's a delicate process because you really it's really hard to talk about these issues without getting a, a little dramatic and a little bit uh, a little too deep sometimes. Yeah. And some people just don't want to hear that. They're just like, look, I just want to go to work and do my thing. And, you know, you have to work at that. It's very difficult to convince one person. Um, It's a little different to convince groups of people. But I think if you build those definitions on principles that are clearly defined, you're transparent with what you mean, with what you say, um, you you can make progress. Any stories that were released on Democracy Day, any piece of journalism or, or pieces of narrative or new facts that you thought were particularly surprising or interesting that were some of your favorites? Yeah, so there's one, and I can find it for you. Um, there, there's a few, but the ones that, that stick out to me the most are the stories about the process. Um, it's a little meta, but the process behind journalism around these issues. And they demystify or they seek to demystify the process of reporting on elections, on democratic process. Um, and they do it from a very self-aware and self uh, and, and humble perspective, not this sort of preachy, the reader is dumb, you should know all this in your civics class kind of thing, but a really deep dive from a very interested and genuine and in, you know earnest perspective on here's how we do what we do, not to just dissuade criticisms, but to open up the box and show what goes into these types of stories, this type of reporting, and, and not just, and, and through that, what goes into the process of 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 having a democracy and especially in our in our country. And so in doing so, it not only pulls back the the the, the veil on journalism itself, but it, it gives the people a different lens through which to view the the importance, the value and the process of democratic uh, activity in the United States. One of the things I'm inspired about by what you did is the potential of what we could as a collective learn. And by that, I don't mean what, you know, that one person has, because frankly, is not how I think democracy works, nor do I think it's really how human minds work. 
not because there's one person who has it figured out and they let everybody know else know how it is. That might work for engineering, right? I'm, I'm not going to, I don't think we need group think for nuclear physics, although it helped to have a group of nuclear physics to split the atom. Uh, but I'm not calling my own play for that. But I would call it, you know, I'd ask a pretty broad array of people about how we get to a more perfect union. So the idea of the day is kind of group study, right? That where, where you the stuff is released and we study for longer than just that day. Mm-hmm. What'd you learn? Well, we learned that uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy around this topic. There are a lot of journalists at newsrooms of all sizes, including freelancers and independent journalists who are who have been dying to uh, to talk about this and have an opportunity to do it at a stage or at a level that um, you know doesn't make them seem like you know they're running around shouting that the sky is falling for one. Um, and we also learned that you know collaboration and working together. Um, can be incredibly powerful. This is something we've known and we've been making the case for for a while. But, you know, like I said, with with just one or two outlets, you know, writing about this topic, it's fine. Those communities will, you know, get that or the people who decide to read that will will hopefully get information from that. But when you build that kind of momentum among many organizations, and we've seen this with everything from fact-checking collaborations to, um, to, uh, you know, any, uh, any range of investigative collaborations, when you have multiple organizations, news organizations working together, oftentimes the trust in that journalism that's produced and the work that's produced goes up compared to how it might be with a, a particular outlet or maybe just one or two outlets because you're bringing in such a broad uh, range of systems, of verification systems, of styles, um, and you're you're coming together around a solid topic. And that lends credibility to the effort because it's a lot harder to coordinate or to, you know, be conspiratorial with those many, that many uh, individuals or organizations involved. And uh, it, it lends credibility, I think, to the effort. Any stories you noticed of where democracy worked, where it produced an outcome that was positive or where it demonstrated its advantages to other uh, systems or where elements of democracy demonstrated their value relative to the absence of that element or the you know, authoritarianism itself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think the thing that always, the, the stories that always grab my attention are the ones that highlight um, the accountability mechanisms in democratic processes. The idea that uh, if something, if a private company were to do something, even if it's a, a heinous thing, right? Even if it's something like, you know, illegal dumping or uh, redlining and things like that, when a private company does it, you have no avenue of recourse. You have no ability to 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 hold individuals or LLCs or whatever accountable for any of the things they do. That's not to say that there's perfect mechanisms now. I mean, Purdue Pharma, you can name a million companies that have essentially gotten away with uh, murder for the cost of maybe a week uh, of gross revenue, you know? So I'm not saying it's perfect, but without those kinds of democratic systems in place to hold organizations and individuals accountable, um, those kinds of crimes would not only be rampant, but they would be commonplace to the point where, um, you know, it'd be like getting a parking ticket because what is the, what's the accountability? What's the, the punishment for that kind of behavior? And what's the recourse for the community as well? Uh, and so having uh, local democratic input, local community input um, on these ki- types of decisions um, and, and allowing the community to hold people and individuals and organizations accountable is huge. But even smaller example, like a less dramatic example, would be participatory budgeting. The city of New York uh, has done multiple participatory budgeting experiments where community 
members were asked to come to meetings and help decide how to spend uh, a, a certain section of the budget on, you know, everything from community beautification projects to uh, security projects. I mean, the community gets to decide what to do with this pot of money, and they use a democratic process of voting and rank choice and stuff like that. I'm not sure the exact process. Uh, and the outcomes are great. And not only are the outcomes great, but the, but the level of uh, involvement and pride and investment from not just the people who participated, but the other community, uh, the other residents in those communities goes through the roof. Uh, and that sort of intangible sense of camaraderie and, um, you know, togetherness is something that is hard to measure, but it's undeniable when you when you see the results of something like that. What a great example. And I'll say some of my expose, some of why I asked that question, why I'm interested in it, because it is so easy. I don't want to say it's easy, so much easier and so much more frequent. Because, heck, you've got public records requests and Freedom of Information Act at, at one's disposal to do uh, an in-depth story of how the public library wasted some money or paid too much uh, to the executive or, I don't know, lost some books. They lose books. Maybe they never lose books. Uh, or how or how a prison system spent blank amount of money on, on soda pop. Look at this. I remember there was a story. Look, all this money spent on soda pop because all you had to do was do a public records request for the for the prison budget, right? And you look, okay, what's the what's the food budget? And then you look at the thing that you think would make the best headline, and then you go, oh, look at this! How much we're spending on soda pop? It's like, right? And 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 ends anything more than a thousand dollars sounds like it's money, right? At some point, our brains have a hard time calculating between a thousand and a billion. You know, the difference is very large. The difference is not two, right? There is not enough certain number of zeros. It's like a lot. So the discipline, the exercise to try to highlight, you know, pictures up on top of the box, right? Examples of where democracy is working. This is how we are, in fact, stronger together. Uh, that and and not because we put a political party in charge necessarily, but because we put people in charge. What did you learn that you want to do differently for next time, if anything? Was there any? Is it just sort of more cowbell because you figured it all out, or were there any things like, oh, you know what, this this occurred to us now that it'll, it will implement it next time? Yeah, so uh, there are a couple of things. Some some logistics things, for instance, um, we sort of late in the game realized that I could I realized I could set up an email notification for and a little check mark on the submission form to let all the partners, the other partners, know when a story that was submitted by uh, mm -hmm. another partner was available for republication. Um, I also could have grouped those emails into a digest that goes once a day instead of flooding the listserv with a bunch of emails. Um, we also would really, we're really going to be using, you know, we did this all uh, for free. We didn't have any funding for this. Uh, the group that was involved, you know, Jen Brandell, Bridget, uh, uh, Bridget Thorison, Stephanie Murray, and uh, Rachel Glickhouse and I. And now that we've gotten, I think it was one hundred twenty-five dollars or $135,000 from uh, democracy fund to support this in 2023 and beyond. Um, one of the things we're going to be doing differently is hiring a specific project manager. That's something that, uh, you know, almost every collaborative that we've had or run has benefited from. Um, we, all the uh, media uh, that we uh, received, the attention we received was earned media or organic. So we might be drop a little bit of money. We're going to sprinkle some money on it a little bit to see, especially when it comes to paying the partners and, and freelancers to see who can't really do this uh, or spend time on this without, you know, giving up time and money in, in another area. So hopefully to supplement some of that. And we'd really like to get some of the larger media publications and organizations out there to, to buy in. I mean, it they all seem to be writing articles and publishing stories 
um, about these threats. And uh, it would be really great to see some, you know, collaborative buy-in in 2023 and especially 2024, um, just to, to get that profile even higher and to show more of a broad spectrum of participation um, among allies. It's tough though, because people and, and, and companies have very unique reactions to what, you know, certain projects, certain phrases and words for whatever reason. Um, so it is tough to get that many different types, shapes and colors of cats into the same, uh, herd them into the same pen, but um, you know, we're going to do our best and we're excited. We, you know, the, the Gannett newsrooms were on board. That was like a huge chunk of otherwise yeah. very corporate media. Uh, and so we're making baby steps. And like I said, the most important step is the next one. So back to metrics, how many were you able to count? How many stories were sort of democracy day stories and yep. or how many organizations and user organizations were part of it or how many people engaged with those stories? What are, what were some of the numbers you're proud of or, or worried about? Well, so total, including the Gannett papers, um, we so in each individual Gannett paper, we had uh, 395 participating organizations from across the country. Uh, altogether, we tracked, and this is it's tough to track all these because not everybody will send you an email when they publish a story or make sure to include the little tagline so the Google search, you know, news uh, notification can find it. But we tracked about 300, I think it was 318 stories or, or um, you know, publications in support of or as part, a part of the project. That's great. And and what was the publication window of those 318 stories? All that day, within a week, within six months? We, we said within like a, a week and a half, two weeks. Yeah. Uh, so like a week before and a week after we gave some time and we did the final count uh, about maybe eight or 10 days, uh, business days after the that that one week buffer after after September 15th. Um, and I'm still, I still have to go through and finish up this, the report, uh, so we can look at it for next year, but, um, yeah. Do you come up with story ideas that you pitch others? Is there a discussion saying, Hey, listen, here's 26 ideas. If anybody wants to take one of these, or do you just say hashtag democracy day, go nuts. Um, so a variety of answers. Yes. We, we put together a content menu, which not a big fan of that phrase, but we put together this list of- Sounds very uh, tangible and edible stream. though. Content I know, yeah, menu, they, yeah, exactly. Right? They, <laughs> so, yeah, it's not just a, it's not a marketplace of ideas. No, it's this is a content menu. menu. You get eat it. it and get out. Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, so we broke it down into what we considered lower effort, medium effort, and higher effort story suggestions. Um, so on the lower end, it, you know, candidate profiles, but specifically through the lens of their support or opposition to voting rights or other policies that relate to democracy and democratic uh, institutions, um, looking at uh, stories about into poll workers, humanizing the process that they have to go through, um, and to sort of dissuade this sense of seeing them as sort of non-persons uh, who are just, you know, cogs in a machine. There's a lot of uh, voter intimidation and polling place intimidation going on. And these are a, a lot of grandma and grandpas out there trying to help out and make sure you can vote. So uh, stories like that, lower effort stuff in that end. Medium effort would be transparency stories that explain your newsroom's approach to democracy and democratic and elections coverage. We talked about this earlier. Um, articles about how the transition of power actually works in your municipality, city, or state, um, as well as some history or along uh, alongside of that. 
Uh, and then on the higher end, uh, you know, more engaged journalism that actually democratizes your own newsroom, um, you know, bringing the public, members of the public, not just their feedback and thoughts, but uh, allowing them to take part in some part of the decision making around what you cover, sort of handing over some power uh, as a democratic example or exercise um, and a lead into that coverage. So that's that's more on the higher, you know, and obviously proactive stories sort of warning readers about what to expect and the certain threats and how to you know guard against them. But that's the sort of spectrum we were going for in terms of providing possible suggestions for our outlets who maybe just, or, or journalists who came into the project like, cool, democracy, what, what am I supposed to write about? So, but we didn't have any influence on anyone's in particular coverage. Can I pick, can I pitch you a couple? Absolutely. I have like four. All right, here they go. I, and I, most of them, maybe all, will go in the harder category. Okay, so here's my, here's my to the collective. All right, one is, uh, is yeah, just looking at democracy outcomes could even be comparative journalism, right? Like where, like, and and some of these I think are studies. I'm interested in if if their academics might even get in cahoots. And one of the reasons I like the idea of starting early, talking about this in October, in the run up to the next, rather than September 14th or September 16th, right, is because I think some of the real work needs to be done well in advance. But comparative pieces of like look at look at health outcomes of authoritarian regimes versus small d democratic regimes, right? Look at look at environmental outcomes, look at economic outcomes, look at war, and then and then be smart enough to at least isolate a few variables, right? Because it's pretty hard. You don't you know we only have give or take two hundred countries in the uh, in the world. You don't have a hundred thousand, so you you know your your scatter plots are not fully scattered. But the but that's but that's one sort of comparative second you already hit the other category which is cool stuff people are doing i think that if we give not only this is what's breaking or here are the threats but also here's here's some pictures on top of the box so here's some next pieces here's some next steps worth taking or at least worth evaluating uh another one is i'll put a plug in for sortition right like like real you know because we we do this now we you know We've done give or take a hundred of these conversations. And so we hear a bunch of this stuff. Uh, there might be various things we've covered that, that and I won't go through all of them, but but one of the more interesting ones seems to be for, you know, kind of the truest sense of democracy is a sort of random selection, but demographically representative, uh, ideologically representative, geographically representative uh, to, to get to ideas. And then here's my last one. And I say my last one for last on purpose. And it gets back to this conversation that I would have with this kid, his name, I don't remember, back at Pomona. And his case would be, why do we want the dum-dums to vote? Why do we want, why don't we want the Pomona kids to vote? All of us had to get a 1420 on our SAT and the old scoring method in order to go here. All of us needed to get a three, nine. All of us need to demonstrate discipline. All of us have to go to our civics class, have an idea of what we're talking about it before we do it. And I basically had two responses and they are both tautological. The second one, I don't think is. I actually think the second one could be supported by empiricism, but it should be evaluated as hypothesis rather than as truth. So the first one was just my line, which is I think democracy works better when more people do it. And and that's tautological because that's by definition of democracy is it's more democracy the more people are doing it. If it's not democracy, it's a little less that. It's something, fewer people are doing it, it's something less than democracy. The second was this, that I have a, a hypothesis, but his only hypothesis. The idea is if you, his idea essentially was if you study, if you if you take if you take the right poll test, if you can answer a question of how many justices, he didn't say poll test, I did, but if you 
take a test and know how many justices there are on the Supreme Court? Do you know how many U.S. senators there are? Do you know how a bill becomes a law? If you know, most people don't know that, by the way. That's kind of complicated. But some things basic or not basic. Then after you've learned that knowledge, you'll be a better participant. I have a converse understanding. My converse hypothesis is, and I believe it could be studied and proven to be true or not, is that once somebody votes for the first time, they get smarter. That once somebody, like I remember the first time I voted, and I mean smarter about democracy, I mean more paying attention. I remember the first time I voted, I went in and I cast a ballot and I learned about offices I didn't know exist. And the reason I voted for the first time, I've told this story before, is because a buddy of mine in college said, hey, Jeff, have you voted yet? And I was like, no. And he said, come on. And I got in his truck and we went and voted. That was it. And I wasn't protesting by voting or protesting by not voting. I just, oh yeah, okay, we better go vote. And I looked at all these things. People I'd never heard of before, offices I'd never heard of before. I had a little voters pamphlet. So I, and I learned all kinds of stuff. And by the way, I started paying a little more attention because I voted. I didn't start paying attention and therefore I voted. I voted and therefore I started paying attention. It reminds me when I became a fan of auto racing. I became a fan. Of, I was never a fan of auto racing. Didn't feel like a real sport. It, heck, they didn't even run around. My stepbrother's uncle became a, started working in a pit crew for a race team. And so we got pit passes to go and watch how the pit crew worked. And I was like, this, I like, whatever, I'll go free sandwich. And once I was there, I learned why tires were important. I knew that tires were important for a car, but I realized how important tires and the rate at which you changed them were for winning an auto race. I learned the difference between cars and drivers. When does the driver matter? When does the car matter? I learned that pit speed has such a bit, this is open wheel racing, pit speed has such a big impact on the ability. And I learned a bunch of stuff that I, not because I was asking questions, not because I was that curious, but just because I was there. And after that, I started becoming an auto racing fan. My hypothesis is, is that if people vote a couple of times, they become better citizens, better participants in democracy. And I think that's the kind of thing that gets studied, right? You have, you, you have a control group. You look at, okay, here's some people who vote and here's some people who don't vote. And you try to actually have it be a control and then you watch them. All right. That's my last pitch. Yeah. I, I think also, I mean, just having people who talk about this kind of stuff talk like a human being is 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 huge. I think a lot of the uh, the esoteric and, and sort of removed stuff you're referring to, like the the mysticism around it, um, just seeing it and seeing how it works and being uh, spoken to and talking about it like a normal human being and not a politician and not a not a news anchor, honestly. Um, can be really effective and just having a sense of humor and self-awareness is huge. These are the kinds of things that like we really want. Uh, we're really trying to push more journalists to do more commentators um, to take the authenticity uh, up a little bit and actually show people vulnerability be more transparent about what you do. Um, I think I stuff like just having people participate, I think is huge. Now there's certainly been some things I I've went to NASCAR races and I, I absolutely hated it. Uh, I saw how it worked and I was like, you should have been in the pit crew. The pit crew was fun. You get good yeah. sandwiches. My, my, I think it, my, my dad used to race quarter, uh, quarter size stock cars when we lived in North Carolina. So maybe it was my proximity that did me in. Um, and that's fine. Not everybody has to participate um, all the time. And, and I think that's one of the freedoms and prerogatives of a democratic society. Um, the thing that's important to me is that you don't you retain that option for people because when it's important, when people really have a vested interest or a stake in it, um, they have no choice but to participate, and they can't just sort of discover 
democracy uh, um, casually because it's the, the results of the lack of democracy are foisted upon them so many times throughout their day and throughout their lives that they can't ignore it and they can't be ignorant of it. And so the more that we can open up the avenues for people who find themselves as labeled as one of the dum-dums or uh, uh, under the boot of the more authoritarian aspects of our societies, um, have avenues out and have uh, uh, avenues of redress and can actually do something to change their situation or to push back on the people who are trying to maintain that oppression. And what about that? How, how do you evaluate or how do you see in terms of cutting across different communities, different demographics, right? Not only self-described democracy nerds who would, might talk about this stuff for an hour, but for people who have a variety of needs and interests, right? And a variety of viewpoints, frankly. Uh, what did you, anything you learned on that front, either that's going well or that we got to do better or that stories that were particularly salient on, you know, kind of, kind of cutting across communities or, or, or bringing together communities? Yeah. Um, I learned that, you know, I, and I could sort of knew this going in, but one of the things that stuck out to me the most and has stuck out to me the most is that stories aren't enough. Journalism is not enough. Journalism is not going to fix this problem. Journalism as an industry is responsible for a large portion of the problem. Um, and has served been been used and has served in the service of heinous dubious forces of authoritarianism um, whether it's their complicity with slave owners in in running runaway slave ads whether it's their complicity with the police in every single labor uprising uh, or worker rights campaign that's existed in the united states or it's their unapologetic jeering and championing of any u.s military intervention or bombing campaign there is a lot of damage to be undone and news organizations are part of the problem uh, that doesn't mean that they cannot be part of the solution or that individual organizations and journalists can can help to build the solutions. Um, but it's it's got to be more than stories. It's got to be more than journalism. It has to include things like mutual aid. It has to include community engagement. It has to be non-transactional. You cannot go out there and talk to people uh, uh, or communities only when it suits your needs or when you need something from them. You have to be of and for and with the the community that you are you serve, and you have to serve them. It, it is not, um, it is not about, you know, content. It shouldn't. It's not content is but one of many vehicles through which to deliver the essence of democracy, which is neighbor uh, neighborliness, community, uh, and, and communion. And it's way more than just journalism in order to fix the problems that, in large part, journalism is complicit in. I want to get on my soapbox again, but this time it's just to compliment you. So this is, it gives me hope, man. The, uh, uh, this is priceless organizing. You start with no budget. You get 300 to 400 organizations on board. You publish, give or take, 300 stories in the first year about some common principles. Then you get some, some funding together that would still classify you as a small, maybe not micro, but very small nonprofit organization, but, you know, bigger partnership. And and that is precisely the kind of stuff we need. And I say this not to just shine you on, but I say that to, you know, our dozens of listeners, which is there are people in democracy who can help save it. There are people who are in a position to put something together that can highlight stuff that needs to happen, that in many respects, the revolution will not be funded. And solving 
the problem of how we can live together is kind of all of our jobs because in market sense, it's nobody's job. So that's just, that's my soapbox just to say, thank you. Uh, what are next steps? What are you up to next? Uh, so we're, we're, we're having a meeting in a couple of weeks uh, with the original organizers. We want to expand the um, coordinating committee. We want to get an advisory board and we want to um, really uh, start setting the groundwork for a larger net of participation for 2023, ultimately looking at 2024. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it's just it's it's really just building this and, and solidifying the internal infrastructure and the foundations uh, of the project and um, sort of setting up uh, the next uh, two years uh, of the project. Well, we, we can at least, you know, highlight cool democracy day stories when the next one comes up and some of the last ones. In fact, let me just ask, you're going to occur to you now, that's not the last chance. Anybody we should be interviewing, anybody that occurs to you that was a subject of a story or the author of a story who we ought to be talking about and considering in this series of discussions, not because we're the most important series, but because we can do our small part. Um, I, I think the, the folks over at, um, MLK 50 in, in Tennessee are incredible and they're doing a lot of work that goes so far beyond what you might consider journalism uh, to really support their communities. Um, uh, Outlier Media in Detroit and Detour Media, um, Candace Fortman is a, a genius and she's a joy to speak with. Who else? I mean, anybody on the Democracy Day coordinating team. I was I was a little disappointed for you because I, I you know, you got the the lowest of the crop here in terms of being able to sort of speak about this. That might. How do you think they found a host for this show? Same thing. <laughs> All right, so we're even then. But yeah, I mean, you know, Bridget, Jan, Brandell. Rachel, Stephanie, um, you know, all the folks who who are on that original organizing committee just have such a clear vision on, um, you know, the steps that at least the, the minor limited steps that media can take in the uh, in the interim. Um, and it's just it's been a pleasure to work with all of them. So you said I heard you say MLK 50. I heard outlier media. And I said the coordinating team from your lips yeah. to God's ears. And by God, I mean, Cal Curtis, who produces the show. Also, uh, KPCC and LAS did a really good job as well. Thank you. KPCC and LAist. I want to say thank you so much. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for being one of the key people to help put this together. Uh, we'll continue to follow your work. And ultimately, thanks for being a democracy nerd. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, man. Be well. Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seeliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.